Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Tuesday, August 2nd, just about 11 a.m., a little after 11 a.m. Eastern Time, so seven hours before the trade deadline. On this episode, Al and I are going to focus on the deals that have already happened, the fallout from the prospect side of those trades, players on the move, some players maybe near Major League Ready getting opportunities or losing opportunities in some cases as a result of moves, and Perhaps we'll get some breaking news while we're recording. I'd be surprised if we went the next 45 minutes without getting another bit of information or two about possible trades, since it seems like volume is really picking up here late on Tuesday morning. Um, Al, I think we should talk about the Reds trade that sent Luis Castillo to Seattle first, if only because I'm fairly confident that unless we see Juan Soto get traded Noel V. Marte is the best prospect that will be moved at this trade deadline. He's pretty much a top 10 prospect on in-season updated list now. So I think that's a pretty safe thing to say at this point. Yeah, I think that's a very safe thing to say. But that's also a good caveat that uh, the, the Juan Soto deal will uh, almost certainly involve uh, similar uh, prospects of similar caliber. But yeah, this is a big one. And, you know, not just Marte, but Edwin Arroyo, Levi Stout, uh, who are players that we've talked about in previous episodes uh, this season, uh, Andrew Moore, and it's not that Andrew Moore that was, there was a, a previous Andrew Moore on the Mariners, right? I'm not just they imagining that. They have drafted two Andrew Moores, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, Marte, obviously the big, big name here. And one of the things that stands out, and maybe this is just picking nits because like you said, he's a, a top prospect uh, by, by all accounts. But part of the appeal, I think, in Dynasty Leagues was the, the power speed combo and he's not been an, an efficient base dealer this year at high a 13 of 19 so is that something that you would factor in uh you know going forward that maybe this is not a, a, a part of his appeal that we can we can rely on going forward I think it might be the kind of thing we have to dial back the ceiling on as he advances. I think that's probably what I'm looking at is if the success rate remains similarly low once he gets to double A, I think we'll start to see reduced opportunities even there. In terms of his raw speed, the Fangraphs grade is a 60 with a future 55. I know there's a chance because he's so young. He's only 20 years old. He turns 21 in October. If Marte moves off shortstop, moves over to third base eventually or something, expectations for him to run might go down even further, depending on what changes he goes through with his body. But I think it's power over speed in the long run, but something in in the speed category, even as that fades. Like If he became the kind of player that one day hits 25, maybe even 30 home runs in his best seasons, the ballpark change helps a lot for his keeper and dynasty appeal. Moving into Great American Ballpark bumps up that value even further. If he's a 25 to 30 home run guy and he's going to steal five to eight bases in the long run, I think you're still pretty happy with that. If it's more balanced, if it's more of a 2020 profile, that's still on the table. But I think we'll get more answers on that front probably within the next year or two. I think it'll be a little easier to see. And I think this is one of those studies that I'd like to run at some point. Look back in the last five years of of prospect data and and see how do minor league stolen base volume numbers and success rates impact major league attempts and success rates? Can we learn anything from them? I think because stolen bases at the big league level have really fallen off, 
are we still seeing the same kind of patterns we saw 10 and 15 years ago, or are we seeing even sharper decline? Are the numbers we're seeing from prospects even less reliable than they used to be? I think that would be a concern that I have, but I don't have any sort of information to back that sort of claim up. But to answer your question, it's a concern, uh, but it's not the kind of thing that I'm looking at and saying, eh, I don't, I'm not in on Marte because of it. I just think his production might tilt more toward the power side in the long run if that speed element doesn't round into form the way we hope it will in the upper levels of the minor leagues. Yeah, and you raise a, a point that's probably more important than the one I raised, which is it's a big offensive upgrade in terms of the home park, assuming that he does stay in the, in the Reds organization. I mentioned this on, on Rates and Barrels on Monday, and I, I think with the Reds, my frustration with them when they decided to start picking apart the roster back during the lockout times was that I thought, especially with an expanded playoff field and being in the NL Central, I thought they were good enough to contend for a playoff spot. And then if they weren't in contention, they could have done the full teardown right now. Uh, but I do think the way that this has turned out and the players they've got back so far, and it's not just Marte. I mean, it's a four-player deal. Edwin Arroyo has been one of the big movers this season. So they get two potential impact infielders in this deal. And you think about Ellie De La Cruz, who's been one of the most tooled-up prospects in the minors going back to the start of last season. He's making his way up in the system and up prospect list. And you think about Cam Collier, who they got at 18 overall, a possible top five, top seven pick that actually slid in the first round. It's easy to see the pieces sort of coming together probably in 2024 and 2025. Now, it's not what you want to hear if you're a Reds fan, but I think as opposed to some teams that don't have impact prospects at the top of their system right now, the Reds have that, and they have a clear core like kind of purpose. They have a clear destination they're aiming for. There are some teams that get caught in between playing for the future and playing for now, and the Reds, to their credit, at least committed fully to the future. And I, I like what they've done, even though I didn't necessarily like the timing of when they started it. Yeah, they've done a good job with it, given, like you said, the direction that they they went on. And I, I realize I'm kind of skipping ahead here, but I, I think that you're you're providing a good segue into uh, another team that's been involved in the deadline. That's the Orioles. And actually just right before starting on here, I don't remember which, which writer it was, but somebody on Twitter saying that the, the Orioles are waving the white flag. Uh, a lot of people are kind of coming down hard on the Orioles for trading Mancini and especially for trading Jorge Lopez. And I think these these are the kinds of deals that don't, and maybe I'm echoing something DVR that you have said on a previous show, but I don't think these deals are the types of deals that make them a, a demonstrably worse team now, and it makes them a better team, you know, next year and, and, and after and beyond. Yeah, so I think trading Trey Mancini was a little more complicated because of his story in Baltimore, right? right? I mean, that, that added a layer of difficulty, a fan favorite player, a guy that I think pretty much anyone who's just rooting for humanity and just rooting for, for good baseball in general was rooting for Trey Mancini. I don't think trading him and trading Jorge Lopez means the Orioles are giving up on this season. I think the Orioles probably internally know that they are getting a little bit lucky this season. They're a little bit ahead of schedule. And if they can make their organization more competitive in the long run by taking very, I think, small hits to their 2022 roster, 
it, it makes sense to do it. You know, I I think I'm I'm putting myself on the unpopular part of the conversation. Like I'm I'm on I'm on the wrong side of this one. If there can be a wrong side of a, a, an argument like this, but I think when you look at a player like Trey Mancini and how limited the value of a corner bat can really be for a major league team, when you think about a short reliever like Jorge Lopez and the limited impact that players like that can have on a game, you don't miss those players as much as you think you will. And they have plenty of corner depth in Baltimore. So it's not like the the drop-off is going to be from Trey Mancini to someone that's going to strike out 35% of the time and can't hit. Like they'll, they'll, they'll backfill reasonably well there. And I think identifying useful bullpen arms is probably a strength of this organization now. I think mm-hmm. we're seeing the the Houston DNA in the front office, we're seeing that as clearly as we've seen it at any point in Baltimore's rebuild. Lopez is a part of that. Dylan Tate, the success he's had this season, is a part of that. On the starting pitching side, I think Tyler Wells is part of that. I think we're seeing it a little bit right now with Austin Voth. So if you're an Orioles fan and you're mad that those two guys got traded, I think you have to be a little more realistic about what the limitations were even if you'd kept those players and say look this is not about this was never about 2022 like this this roster was never about winning in 2022 and winning a world series in 2022 it was about playing for a longer term future where they could be perennially competitive in a division that's just awful it's so hard to be good in the al east and i think they're doing that so tough day on the one hand but I think they're doing right by their long-term plan by trading those two players yeah now I, I like the moves and and yeah I want to be clear I totally um you know commiserate with with Orioles fans because yeah it's it's a rough day as a fan but uh in terms of people you know writers uh who cover baseball who are you know making this pronouncement I just think it's a bit of binary thinking that we all, I think, get get sucked into around the trade deadline. There's buyers and there's sellers, but we have seen you know examples of teams like the the Rays, uh, who you know they go both go both directions, uh, and there are ways. Uh, and, and you know, to bring it back to fantasy in dynasty leagues, I've been taking unless I'm way out of it, I kind of take this middle approach of trade players uh, who are are you know going to hurt me uh, by losing them this year. But it's not going to be a huge hit to the team, uh, or you know, to take an example from an actual dynasty team that I have this year, trading Merrill Kelly, but not Freddie Freeman, right? You know, um, and then you know, also getting some near-term uh, players, uh, you know, players who'd be ready uh, in the next year or two, getting them in return. So, yeah, I, I just think it's it's sometimes a more complicated picture than just buying and selling. Yeah, and I think if you think about the return that Jorge Lopez brought back for the Orioles, Cade Povich is probably the most highly regarded prospect that they got back. He's at high A right now, so he's not helping them this season. He might not even be ready to help them in 2023. He might be more of a a 2024 guy, but a K rate over 30%, good control at high A, and probably the kind of guy that actually sticks as a starter in the long run. He was a third-round pick of the Twins in the 2021 draft. I think what I would really want to do as an Orioles fan is start to look at players like Povich and other pitchers that are already in the system 
and start to round up a little bit on what they might become because there's just evidence that the Orioles are going to get a lot out of their pitchers in player development. So, you know, I know Yenier Cano is a triple-A guy. He might see some innings in the big leagues this year. He might even be a replacement for Lopez in some way. Already has, in fact, as, uh, you know, in the, yeah. in the Twins' bullpen. Right, so he's just one of those guys that he could he could backfill. Everybody else moves up a chair, and then you know Juan Rojas, Juan Nunez, I think are, are really young players that are years and years away. But if one of those guys pans out, and Cano's a useful bullpen arm, and eventually Povich joins your rotation, that's actually really good for a reliever that prior to this season was probably untradeable. Prior to this season, Jorge Lopez was more likely to be a waiver claim than someone that was bringing back multiple players via trade. So I think you have to keep that perspective as well. Also think a lot of the people that complain about a baseball team's direction are multi-sport writers or multi-sport media personalities in their markets who who fly in, they parachute in for baseball at a few select times of the year and then they move on to football season. I think that's like 80 plus percent of the people that complain hard about teams sort of doing the right thing at the trade deadline. Yeah. I I think there's probably something to that. So the other trade that happened yesterday when we were recording Rates and Barrels was the Josh Hader trade. And the fallout from the Josh Hader trade is Asturi Ruiz ends up in Milwaukee. And I don't know where exactly he fits into their plans right now. I mean, he got option to AAA Nashville after the trade. I'm sitting here wondering if there's still another move or two coming from the Brewers. And I also wonder if Ruiz is the kind of player that doesn't actually ever play in Milwaukee. Maybe he's part of another trade. Maybe he's just a, a guy they got back as a value grab. They knew other teams liked him, and we're going to be talking about him next week as having a clear path to playing time somewhere else. So I'm just kind of curious, when you look at Ruiz and the situation he's in right now, and again, knowing it could change in the next six and a half hours, what are you thinking right now after the Padres parted with him because that part wasn't surprising, but where he's right. at currently is a little more surprising to me. Very, very surprising. And I was very interested in your opinion on this as somebody who follows the, the Brewers uh, more closely than I do. But it had, yeah, hadn't really occurred to me that the Brewers might flip Ruiz. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I just took this as that Ruiz is a, a high upside player that in the worst case scenario provides them with some outfield depth. And we've seen, you know, we've seen this with the Brewers uh, this year with Tyrone Taylor in the past with Trent Grisham, where they have these, these high upside uh, outfielders who may be flawed in one way or another, and they're sort of slow to bring them along. And so I don't know if there's an organizational philosophy here of just being very cautious, whether it's hitters in general or maybe something specific to outfielders. But uh, Ruiz maybe fits that fits that mold of you know somebody that could could be very frustrating to us in fantasy in terms of the speed with which the Brewers move, uh, move them into a more prominent role, and maybe it's just yeah I don't know. I mean, again, somebody who follows has followed the team more closely than I have. I don't know if you think there's anything to that or not. I guess I I don't know how they feel about Tyrone Taylor long term. I think from from my position, I look at Tyrone Taylor. He's 28 years old. I think he's a finished product. I think he's basically a league average hitter or close to it. A guy that should play against every lefty that you see in some righties. And if you have the luxury of mixing and matching against some tough righties, you probably sit him in those spots. So that's kind of a fourth outfielder plus, maybe. 
So if they see Ruiz as an everyday center fielder, and I know some people don't see him defensively fitting in there, even though he's very fast, he still take good routes and play the position well. If they see him as a long-term center fielder, okay, then maybe he does stick around. If they see Ruiz the way that a lot of people see Ruiz and say he's more of a corner guy, kind of a, a utility player in some ways defensively, but maybe there's enough there offensively, okay, I, I guess that could work, but they haven't, I don't know if they have rostered a speedy utility player like that anytime recently. It seems like they've they've favored more of the, I guess, Jace Peterson sort of from that mold. But yeah. Mike Brasso and players like that seem to be a little more of their type, the guys that do damage. So anyway, it's a long way of saying if you have Ruiz in a keeper or dynasty league and you're panicking right now, by the time you hear this, the situation could be completely different. And that could include maybe trading Tyrone Taylor. If the Brewers trade Tyrone Taylor and leave center field to Ruiz, that's really interesting. If they trade Tyrone Taylor and upgrade center field and keep Ruiz, that makes things even more complicated. Uh, so he's a, a hold for now, but it was a weird trade because compared to the Orioles situation, giving up Josh Hader, even though they got back Tyler Rogers as part of the deal, I thought that was the kind of trade that if you're in first place and you're messing with your roster like that, you're playing with fire because if it doesn't work out, you will you will get heat for that. You will get a lot of heat if you're David Stearns, if you're wrong. If Taylor Rogers comes in and doesn't pitch well, if Denelson Lamette doesn't upgrade the bullpen depth, he will get heat about that. I mean, even if Robert Gosser, the pitching prospect they got back, ends up being good later, it's a first-place team with World Series expectations. So that, to me, was almost uh, the boldest thing that we've seen so far, and it could easily be topped here in the next few hours. The teams that were kind of playing both sides, one of them is Boston. And they traded Christian Vasquez to the Astros. And they got back Emmanuel Valdez, kind of an interesting infielder who split the season between double-A and triple-A. 21 home runs combined between the two levels. He's got five stolen bases as well. Pretty nice plate skills. The walk rate was actually a double-digit walk rate during his time at double-A. The K rate has improved with the move to triple-A continuing my theme of being skeptical of the quality of pitching at AAA. But I think Valdez is a good reminder that some of the players that get moved at this deadline, when you look at a trade and say, hey, that actually looked like a pretty good return for the team that gave up the more established player, the 40-man roster status of that player going into the offseason might be your extra bit of information to help explain oh, Houston's going to have a 40-man problem. They traded Valdez here because if they had waited till the offseason and chose not to protect him or chose to try and sneak someone else through waivers, they would have probably lost the player that they really want to hold on to. So I think that's part of what's going on here. And it looks like Boston got at least a, a tooled-up infielder that should be vying for some playing time probably by the early part of 2023. It occurred to me maybe even the later part of this year uh, with, with Valdez having a a good season in AAA um, probably does need a little bit more time there. But one of the first things I thought in seeing this trade is, is this a way for the Red Sox to open the door to trade Xander Bogarts or, you know, some sort of other deal? Because um, otherwise I, it doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense to me from their perspective. Yeah, I think if you told me that they're going to, extend Bogarts this offseason like Bogarts will opt out but then he'll stay in Boston that wouldn't surprise me and you'd have the core of story Bogarts you'd have the Devers decision looming 
after the end of next season. You could probably extend him too. Valdez can play probably all of those spots a little bit and maybe even play in the outfield too. I mean, I think there's a chance you could use him as a super utility player, uh, but kind of a fringy top 100 guy on some prospect lists and and someone that I think has not received a lot of attention this year, but now that he's been traded at the deadline, I think there'll be more eyes on him and more interest in him in keeper and dynasty leagues. I think a debut this season is possible. I mean, injuries could pile up and he's more than held his own so far at AAA. So it would not be shocking if Valdez got that chance in Boston. I just thought it was interesting that they made that Vasquez trade and then added Tommy Pham, which, you know, that's playing both sides. That's saying, we're going to get some young talent here that we can keep. We're going to go get a rental over here that, that fixes this part of our roster. And, you know, we're a little worse behind the plate offensively going down from Vasquez to Kevin Pluecki probably plays quite a bit now as a result of that shuffle. But now we're going to make up for that production by adding fam. I don't have a problem with this. I think this this can be a pretty smart way to hang around because, as we know, in the playoffs, if you get there, you can be dangerous enough to make a run. Anyone that goes can be that team that ends up winning the World Series. And I think with Boston, a lot's going to come down to the offers they get on their other players. So in the next six hours, we're going to know, is Nathan Evaldi still there? Is J.D. Martinez still there? If they end up holding most or all of those players, and then they get healthy, you get Devers back, you get Story back, maybe you get Chris Sale back, they are a team you wouldn't want to see in October. If they snuck into the playoffs, if they were the the last wild card in, they could be as dangerous as a lot of other AL teams with health, with that current core in place. So I think that's why they're playing the middle right now. The health uncertainty is kind of wreaking havoc on them. Yeah, and uh, I think that the FAM trade also plays into this this perspective on the Red Sox that if they got a great offer on JD Martinez, then you know they they could plug FAM in, uh, but. Yeah, these these two traits, just as it's, as they stand, don't necessarily make sense, but they do make sense in terms of creating some depth that gives them the room to accept some some good offers if they get them. Yeah, Kevin Plecki and Reese McGuire, who they added too. So, yeah. are you that much worse as a team with those guys working in tandem compared to Christian Vasquez behind the plate? It's a pretty slight downgrade, even though Vasquez is a good player, maybe a very underrated player. I think that's what the the thinking, at least, is in Boston at this point. Uh, Oakland has been pretty aggressive on the trade front going all the way back to the offseason. Not a surprise, given the, the lean of that organization right now. Frankie Montas gets sent to the Yankees. They kind of went the volume route again, and that's been, that's been the A's MO. And I think that's the part, I say I don't understand it when I tweet about it. I, I was jokingly saying, I want, them, I want someone to write a book about this because I don't fully understand it. The part I don't understand or the part that I'm questioning is that when you trade a player like Montas, who I thought, and maybe the health of his shoulder played a role in this, I thought you could get a very similar return for Frankie Montas to what the Reds got for Luis Castillo. An impact top 20, top 25 prospect, another guy that has a chance to make a leap into that group, and then maybe one or two more players that should be future big leaguers. And that to me is a, a safer way to go than getting you know, three pitchers and an infielder that strikes out a lot at high A, which is the really rude way to talk about the return that the A's got. But if you look at it, Ken Waldachuk might be a little underrated. And I think with the Yankees, pitching prospects the last couple of years have been 
a little bit frustrating because you could see you could see paths to being quality big league starters for some guys, and they'd be up and down initially. I think Nestor Cortez was someone that had to go through this, and he didn't have the same prospect appeal that Waldachuk does. So now that he's in Oakland, I think you can pretty firmly put him into the rotation plans for 2023. I think he's an early 2023 call-up. Being in that ballpark, especially, so long as the A's remain in Oakland, also bodes really well for his fantasy value. So I think he's quietly a pretty big upgrade here in terms of where his his keeper and dynasty stock is. But even J.P. Sears, who's really more of a command-first starter, I think J.P. Sears was going to take two years to possibly get a regular spot in the Yankees rotation if it ever happened at all. And instead, you can easily see him penciling in and the A's just saying, 180 innings for you, year over year for the next three years. That's our plan, and it's it's going to work out a lot better for him as a member of the A's that it was going to work out for him as a member of the Yankees just from a pure role perspective. Yeah, I, I mean, he now walks into a situation, Sears uh, does, uh, in Oakland where he could be conceivably a number one or two starter during a rebuild phase. And uh, I, I, yeah, I would expect that he'll be in that rotation at some point for uh, the the rest of the season that the A's can afford to go with a four man rotation for the next two weeks. So maybe we don't see Sears up right away, but I do think that, uh, you know, maybe within a couple of weeks he's in, in that rotation. He's probably the best major league ready option that they have. And just to get back to, to your comparison with, um, with the Reds deal that I, that, that was just a surprisingly robust return for Castillo. And I'm not saying that because I don't think Castillo wasn't worth it. It's just typically we, we see, I think in recent seasons that these prospect halls for, for established veterans sometimes are a little underwhelming. And if it seemed like the Reds really got full value in that trade. So I look at the, I compare those two trades and not so much thinking, Oh, that the A's really got ripped off here is that the Reds did. I thought extremely well. Yeah. I think the Reds fully took advantage of having a non-rental high impact starter. And I, I don't know if the A's took advantage of that to the best of their ability. But again, I think the injury might be the complicating factor here. Maybe teams were a little scared. They didn't have as many potential bidders at the deadline as we would have expected just a few weeks back. Uh, Luis Medina is another guy that, that the numbers right now, the walk rates are very high. The command is a little bit shaky. The floor for him seems like electric late inning reliever, but if you're Oakland, you just keep him stretched out. You keep seeing how it goes as a starter for a little bit longer, so I think it's a slight bump up for his value. And then the infielder I mentioned is Cooper Bowman. Uh, He's made a swing change in the minors. I was reading a bit about him uh, in the A's preseason stuff that Eric Longenhagen had written, I think, over at Fangraphs. 26.6% K rate, 15.1% walk rate at high A this season. He's got eight home runs, and he's 35 for 41 on the base paths. It's only a 95 WRC plus, though. So we're talking about a guy who's going to turn 23 in January. Uh, Good news for the A's. Bowman is not a player that has to be protected on the 40-man roster. Eventually, if you make all these volume trades, you create a 40-man roster problem for yourself. And I think that's probably the direction the A's are going to be headed in. So Bowman's just kind of a lottery ticket. I don't think there's a lot of keeper in Dynasty League appeal right now. I think he's more of a player that you want to watch for the long-term future to see if that swing adjustment actually pays dividends as he moves up in the system. I do want to just mention a couple of their A's-related injury things real quick since we're talking about Oakland. Uh, Zach Galoff, we talked about a few weeks ago, is back from the injured list at Double A Midland. He's been playing third base and second base since returning. He's played about nine games 
games since coming back from a torn labrum in his left shoulder. And then Gunnar Hoagland, who they received in the big trade that sent Matt Chapman to the Blue Jays, is pitching in Arizona Complex League games again. Hoagland, of course, had Tommy John surgery. He was a candidate to go 1-1 in his draft class and fell to the middle part of round one where Toronto scooped him up. Um, So with health, I mean, there's a chance that Hoagland, by this time next year, he could be their number one pitching prospect. That is absolutely in the cards. And his health will ultimately determine, I think, whether or not the J or the A's got enough back for Chapman, because Kevin Smith, of course, has had a down year. Uh, you know, Zach Logue to me looks kind of just like a, an up and down sort of arm. Doesn't look like an impact player, but Hoagland, I think, was maybe sneakily a big part of that trade all along because of his potential ceiling. It's nice to see him healthy again. And we're probably not done talking about the A's. They could flip Sean Murphy by the end of the day today if they want to and get a pretty nice return back for him as well. Oh, and Tyler Soderstrom, one of their top position player prospects, has been moved up to AA Midland as well. So that AA Midland team getting a lot more interesting really quickly with the return of Galoff and the promotion of Tyler Soderstrom. Let's get to a few other moves that have gone down. The Yankees really using that pitching depth. They traded Hayden Wesneski to the Cubs, and that was for Scott Efros, who has several years of control left. So I imagine if you're a Yankees fan, you're hoping that Efros can come in and have some kind of impact akin to Clay Holmes. That's the dream. It doesn't have to be that good to be helpful, of course. But Wesneski, much like the other Yankees pitching prospects we've talked about, Upper levels of the minor leagues, 351 ERA, 115 whip so far this season at AAA, 83 Ks and 89 and two-thirds innings, and now he's pretty clearly on track to join the Cubs rotation, maybe even by the end of this season, if they want to keep getting his innings in at the highest possible level. Yeah, I I would fully expect that we'll see Wesneski uh, debut for the Cubs before the end of the season. And just another organizational observation that this is a, a another pitcher who relies a lot on a two-seam fastball and the Cubs really do seem to like their pitchers to have some sync if you look at the way that that rotation is uh, is constituted uh, so I don't know if this is somebody that they've been been targeting for a while but uh, definitely seems to fit the mold so there is um, some breaking news as anticipated right now I just saw John Morosi tweeting right now 21 seconds ago at the time that I'm reading this. (laughs) Source Padres on the verge of acquiring Juan Soto. Deal is believed to be nearing final stages. We'll see if it crosses the finish line before we sign off. I can't even imagine how massive that return is going to be if it actually happens. I'll talk slow. (laughs) Well, you know, the good thing about a podcast is you can always just make another one if you have to. But... uh, or just tack something on to the existing one. A couple other things that I think are, are kind of uh, fun coming out of the trade deadline. We'll see if we'll get this return by the time we finish this segment. Uh, Will Benson, who we talked about on last week's show, got the call to Cleveland. And it looks like the Guardians are going to send Franmil Reyes to AAA, which you have the options. You might as well use them, I guess. But uh, what kind of role do you think Benson is going to have in the playing time uh, equation for the Guardians? Well, we talked about this a week ago, and and, and I'm just going to tap uh, or, or pat both of us on the back for this because you talked about Benson to somebody be called up. I, I talked about Reyes being sent down as a possible way to make room, and I, I just would be surprised that you do that and not play Benson pretty regularly. So that would be my my expectation is that uh, he'll he'll uh, maybe not necessarily be a true everyday player, but at least part of a rotation that. 
maybe uh, gets gets Benson four or five starts a week. Yeah, I, I think what we've seen at AAA, as we mentioned last week, has been a massive step forward. We're seeing walks. We're seeing a reduced K rate. We're seeing him do damage. We're seeing him steal some bases as well. It's just been a little bit of everything at Columbus this year. A 424 OBP from a guy that's not in the PCL and not 28 at AAA. It's pretty impressive to see that uh, from Will Benson. Taron Vavra, who was discussed last week as well, up for the Orioles. It looks like his role might be a little smaller than you would need it to be for him to have a chance in mixed leagues in the short term. So probably just an AL-only league sort of player for now. Uh, worth keeping an eye on how things might change for him, though, in the next few weeks. And then James Outman got the call for the Dodgers. Uh, old for the level, started the year at A. There's some power and speed, but there's plenty of swing and miss in that profile as well. He was a league average bat during his brief time at A this season, Al, but 30% better than league average at both high A and A, going back to the start of 2021. Yeah, and, uh, you know, his um, call up, raises kind of an interesting thing. I mean, not not like a 12-team relevant issue, but I had thought about making bids on Jake Lamb this weekend, and I thought, you know, once uh, once Turner's back in the in the lineup, um, where, where's the playing time going to be for Lamb? And I don't know how long Justin Turner's going to be out, but uh, at this point, it seems like one of them, one of Outman and, and Lamb, would stand to play pretty regularly, even with Justin Turner in the lineup. So... I would tend to think that would be Outman, but you know, if you're interested in either player in a, a like a 15 team league, I think this is a situation that that we should watch closely. Yeah, I'm looking at the situation for the Dodgers gets a lot better with Chris Taylor making some progress toward a return because once you put Taylor back in the equation, you have removed that platoon. It's basically like a Jake Lamb, Trace Thompson platoon. I know it would, would Turner hurt and the DH spot, they can move guys around and those guys can coexist together. So I think Outman is the extra player on the roster right now who probably gets bumped back to AAA once Taylor's healthy. And then the question still is, will the Dodgers be finding an upgrade for some spot in this lineup? How concerned are they about Max Muncy's performance in particular, how much do they want depth behind Turner or are they comfortable with Miguel Vargas being that player, right? They have that impact big league infielder waiting for an opportunity. We'll see if they make a move. I'd be surprised if they didn't, but it has to be the right kind of fit. Maybe it's not a, if it's not a big Juan Soto sort of trade, it's maybe a, a good established veteran that can play two or three spots that, almost adds to that positional versatility that the Dodgers are, are so uh, so familiar with and, and so so prone to building into their rosters. Couple well, other, uh, I, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that I just quickly looked at the schedule. I think the Dodgers and Angels are done playing each other this year and would would be would it be fun to see an Outman versus Junk matchup like matchup of the self-effacing surnames. Yeah, I mean Junk is a pretty good name for a pitcher. Jansen Junk, he's up to 6% rostered, by the way, on CBS. And I think he's probably, at best, I think he's like a Jake Junis type, like in terms of usage and ceiling. And players like that can be somewhat valuable in deeper leagues, but they could absolutely wreck you when they get used incorrectly. If they're overexposed, they go through the lineup a third time and they shouldn't that's when 
extraordinary damage tends to be done against pitchers like that. So how much do you trust the Angels to use Jansen Junk correctly, given their need for innings? Yeah, not much, especially that thing that you just said, that Junk does appear to be primed uh, with, we would assume, Noah Syndergaard being uh, somewhere else within a matter of hours. Uh, that Yeah, the chances of him being overexposed look pretty great. I hope there's a, an award someday for podcasting you know obviously we've got grammys and emmys and different different awards for different industries but potties no i shouldn't call them potties it sounds like a toilet i don't don't want it to be like that but whatever they're going to call it i hope we win one someday because we're reading john morosi tweets in real time on a podcast on trade deadline day so now it appears that the padres and nationals have agreed in principle on a juan soto trade according to john morosi with Josh Bell also going to San Diego, which probably means that someone, Eric Hosmer or Luke Voigt, is likely going back as part of the trade. One of the things that I'm really curious about is how much the Padres are willing to go over the luxury tax potentially, because it sounds like with the addition of Hader and possibly Soto, they just don't care anymore. Like they're just (laughs) full throttle, like we're going to spend whatever it takes to compete with the Dodgers and hopefully get to the World Series and be you know, on the same plan as the Yankees. And it's really fun to see an organization that traditionally didn't spend like that going into that level because it's proof that your favorite team, if it doesn't spend like that or even close to that level, could spend more like that. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it's possible. It's just a question of the team's willingness to do it. But uh Pretty, pretty exciting, and especially if uh, Josh Bell is involved, it's going to be be a big one. And we do have some names coming back now. We've got, uh, according to sources, John Morosi again. Here I go, reading more Morosi tweets. Nats are set to receive C.J. Abrams, Robert Hassel III, James Wood, Harleen Sasana, a uh, right-handed pitching prospect. Four players so far for Juan Soto and Josh Bell. That almost seems like that's missing names at this point, which oh, I'm sure I am not uh, making an accusation about anything. It just, it's, it, it's coming together in real time. Like that to me almost seems like the number of players involved is just too small for two players going back to San Diego. No, absolutely. That, that was my assumption as you were reading that off. I mean, Hassel is certainly a, a player you figured would be involved in a deal of that magnitude. I would expect there to be more if there isn't uh yeah, then this is, Definitely could be a very light return. I, I there's got to be more. And C.J. Abrams, you know, not having the up and down pressure with playing time, I think he'd be a big winner as a result of this. Even though they're going into a multi-year rebuild in D.C. right now, so we have to keep that in mind. Uh, but look, this is this is going to be a big deal once it crosses the finish line. And Hassel is obviously a tooled-up, long-term impact player, still a couple years away from the big leagues. I know James Wood is probably a name that people have seen in almost every recent iteration of this trade. I think he was a pick last year that would, if they were redoing the 2021 draft, James Wood would go quite a bit earlier than he actually did a season ago. So a big riser there. Be excited. If you're a Padres fan, be excited because as great as all these players that you're trading away could be someday, you're getting Juan Soto and Josh Bell on top of that. So loving this all-in approach and uh, love that they're not afraid to try and chase down the Dodgers too. A lot of teams wouldn't bother to do this, you know, given the current state of the Dodgers. And it looks like we got a Jeff Passan uh, follow-up confirmation. Padres are finalizing a deal to acquire Juan Soto from Washington. So... 
It's going to be a Soto Tatis Machado trio for at least the next few seasons and possibly longer if San Diego ends up offering up that long-term extension to Soto. Yeah, no, really exciting, really exciting uh, and uh, definitely throwing down the gauntlet in the NL West. Uh, I was pretty much convinced up until the reports earlier today that uh, the Padres were, were the driver's seat. I was convinced that Soto was going to the Dodgers. So this is going to make things much more interesting in the NL West. More to come on future episodes, of course, but this seems like as good of a spot as any to wrap up this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Of course, all of the trade deadline coverage on the site is available to our subscribers. Get a subscription for just $1 a month at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. For El Melchior, I'm Derek Van Riper. We are back with you on Wednesday with Under the Radar. Under the Radar.